Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others is pleased to present the C4SO podcast, a place to celebrate the voices and values of C4SO. C4SO is a national diocese of the Anglican Church in North America, led by Bishop Todd Hunter. You can learn more about us at c4so.org. Hello, welcome to the second episode of the C4SO podcast. Now it's a now it's a tradition. Uh, if we've, we did Uh-oh. it once and we decided to do it again. <laughs> Two weeks in a row. I'm your host, the Reverend Ben Sternke, and I'm here again today with our Bishop, Todd Hunter. Todd, uh, it's good to be with you again. Good morning, Ben. Good to see you too. Friends, thanks for joining us uh, on the second episode. Um, this initial series on our podcast is basically focusing on the origins and the history and the mission and the values of our diocese. We're going to be doing that over the next few weeks. And so we'll be hearing uh, quite a bit from Bishop Todd in these first few episodes. Um, today we're going to bridge the story uh, that Todd, Bishop Todd told last week about um, his own faith journey, and we're going to bridge that into the story of C4SO. Um, but first, a couple announcements. Um, if you are a member of C4SO clergy, please do join us for, this, for C4SO Together, which is our online clergy gathering. It's coming up Wednesday, September 30th from 11 to 12.30 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Central Time, uh, Bishop Todd's going to be speaking to us about cultivating the values that connect us, um, a lot of the same values we're going to be talking about on this podcast, eventually, uh, and answering your questions afterwards. So if you want a preview of the values uh, conversation, you can join us for that. There'll be a link in the show notes, or you can go to c4so.org slash events, and also save the date for our virtual diocesan convention. That's for clergy, but it's also for anybody who's interested in the life of our diocese. Uh, That's November 14th. Uh, More information will be coming soon. So, uh, Bishop Todd, let's start our conversation um, by kind of linking it with last week's conversation. Last week, you shared a bit of your faith journey and um, just sort of cursorily mentioned that you had come into Anglicanism kind of from this place of growing up in the Jesus movement, um, coming into the vineyard, um, all of that kind of thing. Um, set the bridge for us here. Like, what, uh, how, how did you get called into Anglicanism? What did that, what did that look like uh, for you? Yeah. So I don't remember exactly how we playfully named my book, The Accidental Anglican. Mm-hmm. But, um, but somewhere in that book, I say, you know, I don't really mean a- accidental. I just mean, wow, I didn't see this coming. Yeah. Uh, but kind of the premise of the book, if people have seen it, is that when I look back, Ben, like literally the earliest influences on me as a convert at 19 years old in 1976 were um, John Stott and Jim Packer. Hmm. I just think they're two books. Um, I always I always draw a blank when we get here. So basic Christianity and no, I think Knowing God. Knowing God, yeah, that's yeah. the Packer book. Were, were handed to me, you know, as a teenager. Hmm. And I say now, jokingly to my own shame, I didn't know those guys were Anglicans. I'd never heard the word Anglican. I didn't know what an Anglican was. I'm not even sure I knew they were English. Um, I just knew that I probably knew the word evangelical, which is an interesting commentary in itself. Um, so I kind of, I, maybe I would have associated words like evangelical or orthodox or in the pale or, uh, kind of popular theological leaders or something. I might've associated those sorts of terms with them, but I would have never associated Anglicanism because I didn't even know what Anglicanism was. 
But again, in retrospective, I realize that sort of careful but winsome way of talking about Christianity has been appealing to me since I was a teenager. Hmm. So say those words again. You know, there's there's nothing you can say, I think, more clear about Stott or Packer than there was a there was a carefulness to their thinking. Yeah. And so they were clear about stuff. You know, they were clear about doctrine. They were clear about any of the ideas they were writing about, but it was always joined with what, you know, in the 90s or early 2000s became known as sort of a generous orthodoxy. Well, yeah. I think before that term was invented, people like Packer and, and uh, Stott were living it out. And that's just always been really appealing to me. Like, hmm. we can have our thoughts without being pugilistic about them. And so that's yeah. just an, an example of kind of being drawn into Anglicanism bef before I knew it. Hmm. And then if I fast forward a bit to my, oh, let's say late 20s, um, and I'm, you know, by this time very close to John Wimber, um, there, uh, people wouldn't know this, but there actually wouldn't be a vineyard movement as we know it today without the Anglican Church. Hmm. Um, the story is that a, a, a senior um, evangelical English leader called David Watson who would have been as well known as uh, Stott in England, but would have been more of um, kind of like a church leader. Uh, uh, yeah. And he was an evangelist, so he would have been close also to Billy Graham. Okay. Well, he was teaching, I think, a course at Fuller, got to know Wimber, and he invited Wimber over to the UK. And that really launched the global vineyard movement. It was really launched by people like David Watson and Michael Green, Hmm. Uh, Sandy Miller at HTB, even before Sandy Miller, John Collins, who was a very well-known uh, English rector who embraced Wimber, uh, people like Bishop David Pitches, of course, you know, Nicky Gumbel, and then we all know sort of New Wine and Soul Survivor and Fresh Expressions and all that. Yeah. Well, that's what put the, the vineyard on the map. Hmm. And because I was, you know, a young, young man in John's shadow, I got to know all those people. Hmm. And they were really influential to me. Again, I just think of, uh, maybe I need some different words, some uh, besides winsome and generous, some <laughs> kind, yeah. um, really loving God, really wanting to see people come to faith and be filled with the Spirit. But there was this mixture of kindness. It was something different than the fighting spirit of American evangelicalism. So whatever, so whatever is the good... Uh, I need my. I need to open Google so I can look up uh, antonyms. But yeah, you know whatever well, I, the opposite is of that sort of fighting yeah. spirit of American evangelicalism has always, since before mm -hmm. I recognized it, before I ever connected the dots, yeah, was super. Um, I was really attracted to it. Yeah, I hear you describing a, a posture, right? It's yeah, not necessarily <laughs> like there's a different kind of doctrine you know it's like this the doctrine all kind of feels the same to you mm -hmm. as, as growing up at least in broad strokes right right um, but but the posture was what was attractive that there wasn't this coercive kind of fighting um, way of talking about belief but a, a way of saying that like I have these beliefs but I also trust that these line up with reality in such a way that I don't, I don't need to convince you that this is true. It's okay for you to be where you're at. Right. Um, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to be where I'm at, and I'm also going to be generous and open and hospitable about it. But if, it feels like that posture was what was attractive to you. Yeah, I, I think that's right, because um, 
they, they, like you said, they simultaneously taught, like they didn't just hold their beliefs, but these people were all yeah. public teachers. Right. So they taught, but they always taught in such a way that like they didn't have to win. Yeah. Um, they would have liked to have won, of course, in the sense of winning someone over to their point of view. Yeah. So they were persuasive. Like I said, yeah. David Watson was really an evangelist. And so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and people like Michael Green and others, they were trying to persuade yeah. Um, towards something, but they always did it. And again, I go back to that word winsome way. Yeah. I think, you know, to put it in a context, which makes your point even um, more profound, uh, Ben, is that like take Nikki Gumbel, for instance, I don't know how old Nikki is for sure, but let's just say 65 ish. Well, safe, Nikki safe and his uh, colleagues, that generation of people, my generation of people, I'm 64. Um, but Nikki never knew a Christendom England. Right. Never. Yeah. He never, uh, uh, he, he would have grown up in university knowing about postmodernism and deconstructionism way right. before it sort of hit the evangelical world in the late 90s and early 2000s. So I think they were so used to kind of being nothing in society that they had dropped the culture wars like a generation or so before. Yeah. Or maybe even never had the post-World War II culture wars that we had in America in the same way. Yeah. And so I always saw them as also sort of down the track of how to have these Christian conversations in a post-Christian culture. And again, I don't remember them ever really talking about it. Now, when I got into Alpha and was working with Nikki and HTB, we did some talking about it then. But when I'm thinking about when I first got to know all these people in the 80s, nobody was talking you know, sort of forthrightly about post-Christendom and all that. That yeah. came a generation later. But without talking about it, because I think it was just so native to them, they were doing it. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of, you know, Leslie Newbigin right. was writing yeah. about this, right? Yes. The, what was that, the 60s? 70s so was, at least, se- yeah. Yeah, 60s, 70s. So, so it was sort of a, a known quantity over there. Um, yeah. That I think I think that's right. It, it, seems, it seems to have settled into their spirits and into their posture in a way that was uh, really helpful. Yeah, maybe a way of thinking about it, that Newbegin was to them uh, kind of what the Gospel and the Culture Network was to some of us in the mm-hmm. late 90s and early 2000s. And For you're sure. right, Newbegin was writing. I don't know when he started writing, but yeah. I believe his most important books like Gospel and the Pluralist Society, Foolishness of the Greeks, I think those were 70s, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure. But nevertheless, yeah. I think, yeah, he was yeah. already articulating for them. And okay. You know, I happen to be friends with George Hunsberger. I never knew Daryl Guter, but Hunsberger and Roxburgh and a lot of those guys I know. Mm-hmm. And they will tell you straight out, we were working on Newbegin. Yeah. Like we were just trying to yeah. under, understand and apply Newbegin. They just tell you yeah. straight out, like we don't have anything new to say. <laughs> we're just, we just don't think anybody's fully wrestled yeah. with what Leslie was actually saying because it was yeah. so profound. Mm-hmm. We're just trying to sort of dig into the profundity of Newbegin. Yeah. All right. So there's this attraction. Uh, that you had, even while you were part of the vineyard, an attraction to this posture that you see in these Anglican leaders um, mm-hmm. and these books, you know, from Packer and others. Um, how, take us on from the story there. How did you become not just a Anglican, an Anglophile, an Anglican-loving mm-hmm. vineyard person, but ha- actually coming into the Anglican Church, yeah. being called into being an Anglican Christian and planting Anglican churches? How did that happen? Yeah, the next phase is my alpha phase where I I resigned as a president of Vineyard Churches because I was so passionately uh, drawn to the issues of the late 90s, early 2000s of postmodernism, post-Christendom. 
I could see culture changing in front of our face. I could see that the church wasn't really ready for it. And so I was just deeply, passionately, uh, curiously concerned about that. And so I helped to found a a foundation where we were helping denominations of all kinds um, consult young leaders who were trying to plant, at the time, I think we were probably calling them alternative churches or something. This would have been in the early 2000s. Well, I always jokingly say I was just minding my own business doing that when a headhunter came and wanted to know if I was interested in being president of Alpha USA. And because I've always loved evangelism and the church, uh, it sounded interesting to me, and so I, I become president of Alpha USA. Well, there I meet a lot of contemporary American Anglicans, okay. because HTB being an right. Anglican church, uh, a lot of American evangelicals were uh, American evangelical Anglicans or Episcopalians were running the Alpha course. And so there, for instance, uh, Patrick Wildman in our movement, I met Patrick a dozen years ago, you know, before I was a, okay. a, a bishop, uh, because they were one of the leading Alpha churches in America. Okay. Uh, it's where I met Bishop Steve Woods, where I met people like Tori Bauckham, the former rector at Truro. That's uh, where in our own movement, uh, it's where I met Tony Barron, you know, lots of, lots of people who weren't those English evangelicals I was describing, I was meeting American people like that. Well, it, at some point, uh, my tenure at Alpha is done. You know, I, I was there for like five years or something and, you know, kind of like a coach in a baseball team or football team or something. I'd sort of had my era and <laughs> had done what I could do. And yeah. and at the time, I, I believe if I'm remembering this right, I'd finished my doctoral work. I believe I'd written my first book or was writing my first book. And I was in my, uh, I was about 54, I think. And I remember thinking at the time I was living outside of Boise, Idaho, and I had an office in the second story of my house and it looked over the beautiful Boise mountains. And I just thought, I think I just want to kind of semi-retire and write books and speak and teach at seminaries and stuff. And I'm kind of done running big organizations. Like I don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. And um, at, as that's going through my head, uh, Tony Barron, who was an Episcopal rector uh, at the time uh, in um, Oceanside, California, I, who I'd met through Alpha, calls me and says, hey, we want to start a daughter, daughter church in Carlsbad. Why don't you, you know, come do that? And I remember thinking, no way, man. That's exactly what I don't want to do. I know what it takes to start a church. It's all consuming. I'm like trying to semi-retire at 54. I'm like, no way. Well, somehow we keep talking. I think what happened was I said to a, a friend, Ron McCrary, who's a longtime Episcopal, now Anglican rector. I don't know how familiar he'd be to C4SO people. But he was a part of Alpha. He was actually Patrick's predecessor oh, at yeah. uh, Christchurch Overland Park okay. and um, was kind of well-known in evangelical Episcopal circles and was really, uh, and that church had already become well-known in Alpha circles. And so I jokingly said to Ron, hey, guess what? This, this uh, Anglican guy's talking to me about planting churches. Like, how weird is that? <laughs> and Ron goes, that's not weird at all. That's amazing. You know, you should do that. So making a long story short here, Ben, he connects me to the Anglican Mission in the Americas. So this would have been sometime probably in 2008. Okay. And um, I remember being on the phone with uh, Ellis Brust, who um, I forget his exact title, sort of like vice president or something. And a a guy called H. Miller, who again, I don't remember his exact title. H. is now uh, working in England with, I think, Rick Thorpe and those guys over there. Okay. and meeting those guys and just sort of talking, like, can this mean anything? And they thought, well, yeah, maybe it does. Why don't you come here to Polly's Island, which is where the Anglican mission was headquartered, and, you know, meet our leader, 
uh, Chuck Murphy. So I fly to Charleston, drive down to Paul Lee's, and I'm pretty sure that both Tony and Ron went with me. Okay. And we just had this kind of exploratory meeting where Chuck Murphy, at some point in the meeting, looks at me and says, well, Todd, do you think you can help us make vineyard-like Anglican churches on the West Coast? And I remember thinking, well, sure, I guess I could help you guys do that. And honest to God, Ben, in my mind, I'm thinking I'm getting a consulting job, right? Because oh, I'm okay. thinking I'm like done with being a yeah. senior leader. I'm us. thinking, okay, yeah. Yeah, I guess I could do a little consulting with my you know, writing and speaking. Sure, yeah. I guess I could help yeah. you guys do that. I literally had no idea that I would become an Anglican, uh, much less an Anglican bishop. But from that conversation, it was less than a year that I found myself um, being an Anglican bishop. So another thing I think of Ben from that era is being really impressed with the Rwandan story uh, Mm. and really impressed with the, the ethnic leaders that were leading the Anglican mission at that time. You know, there was the wonderful stories about John Rishahana. Um, I shouldn't start naming names because I'm going to forget. But <laughs> obviously, Archbishop Kalini and Moses Tay and Young Ping Chung. Um, and then uh, I now I'm going to draw a blank here on the um, the Archbishop that followed um, um, Kalini in Rwanda. Um, shoot, it'll come to me here in a moment. But I just remember there was like a, there was like a Christianity there hmm. that, you know, challenged our Western notions. I mean, when you live some, live through something like the Rwandans did oh, yeah. Yeah. and come out believing and come out, yeah. you know, trying to uh, seek Jesus and embody his kingdom in the ways they were doing it, that was really moving to me. Now, obviously, nothing's perfect and no one's perfect, but I remember that really getting my attention. And like, if that was a part of who we are, then um, that feels like a, a really important thing. The C4SO Cycle of Prayer Spotlight is a brief segment of the podcast where we highlight the specific ministry that we're praying for this week in our diocesan cycle of prayer. So this week we're praying for Resurrection South Austin in Austin, Texas. And Resurrection South Austin is pursuing life together in the goodness of God. That's a vision statement I really like. Um, Resurrection South Austin is led by the Reverend Sean McCain, and he has joined us to share briefly about what's going on right now and how we can pray specifically for them. Sean, welcome to the C4SO Cycle of Prayer Spotlight. Hey, y'all. Thanks for praying for us. Yeah. Uh, Sean's a good friend of mine, and uh, we're going to try to keep this brief um, and... uh, (laughs) Let's um, see. (laughs) For our our inaugural uh, uh, Cycle of Prayer Spotlight. Um, But anyway... Uh, Sean, uh, tell us uh, at Resurrection South Austin one thing that you're encouraged by right now. Um, I'm going to give you two because it just okay. can't not give, give me you one, two. Give me one thing that is that breaks down into A and B. Two parts. Um, I'm really <laughs> encouraged by the creativity uh, of our people to figure out how to be a faithful witness in a time like this in pretty much mm. every way, whether it's our services being online, not being able to gather in the same way, um, our folks have really been creative 
in their um, hospitality and in their care and in their worship lives. They've just been resilient. They've figured out ways. We have figured out ways to do this really well. So mm. uh, it's it's a hard time, but it's really encouraging to see your community pivot and do things creatively like that. That's awesome. One challenge that you're facing right now. Oh, man. Well, I think everyone has it, but uh, fatigue mm. and sadness. We lost a, an elderly member of our parish, a saint, like one of those staple people who is res we lost to COVID-19 a few months ago. And that's been really hard. And what's hard is we haven't as a parish been able to really grieve together. Mm. Um, We've grieved alone. We, I mean, we had a, I was giving last rites over FaceTime and we had an online memorial. So that's the extent of our grief. And that piled on top of just the tough, super complex, whirlwind of what the world's going through and what people are going through has caused a lot of just tiredness and fatigue in our, in our, in my life. And and I'm sure in our other people, our our community's life. Yeah. Yeah. All right. How can, uh, how can we pray for you specifically? Well, all that. Yeah. We, we began the year calling for an observance of a Sabbath life this year. And little did we Mm -hmm. know that we would be Mm -hmm. really Sabbathing in a way that we had not expected. (laughs) Yeah. And so, but in it, we still see that God's God's been slowing us down and simplifying things, and in in kind of a quiet, surprising way, bringing us some rest. But by through through kind of a tough process. Um, so you could yeah. pray for us that God would continue to do that work, and in the midst of doing that, would make us the kinds of disciples who can, in the midst of a tough time, still uh, be faithful and still bear mm. witness to the kingdom. And I think that's okay. what He's doing. So pray for that. All right, friends, if you're interested in uh, hearing more about Resurrection South Austin, or if you'd like to contribute to the work that they're doing, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. Sean, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, y'all, for praying. It's nice to hear your kids kind of crying out in the background there, too. (laughs) That's my life constantly. (laughs) All right. You know, I'm, one of the things I'm curious about as I listen to your story is that you thought you were getting a consulting gig, um, but eventually, you know, you become an Anglican and then an Anglican bishop. Um, what, like, you know, the Rwandan story is part of that, to say, like, I, I actually want, mm-hmm. and I hear you saying, like, I don't want to just help these people. I feel like I identify with these people. I feel like I am one of these people, mm-hmm. you know, like, I, or I'd like to be yeah. one of these people. Um, is there any other, yeah. like, what was the internal movement for you that took you from, sure, I can help some Anglicans to, wait, maybe I am called to be an Anglican? Well, I remember taking months, um, Ben, to process that. Um, just praying and seeking counsel from people. And at the time, Debbie and I were going to a weekly contemplative group, and I would just sit there week after week and think and pray and um you know, people in that group would help us with, you know, kind of Quaker, yeah. you know, yeah. clearness <laughs> meetings kind of things. It actually took a long time. And um, I I don't remember now the exact data points. I just remember sitting at that Thursday evening group. And I think I was working with a sort of clearness question that said, well, just what would you like God hmm. to do? 
And then I pictured, you know, was, was it George Bush's father with a thousand points of light or something? I then just pictured the West Coast sort of lighting up with these little dots mm -hmm. of light. And, and it was in that moment that I thought, wow, I guess God really is calling me to and be an Anglican and to help start this um, kind of yeah. missional Anglican movement on the mm -hmm. West Coast. Um, it, maybe it's important for us, Ben, to unpack for a moment that phrase, vineyard-like Anglican yeah. churches. I, I think to a lot of people that might sound even frankly scary, <laughs> like, well, we don't want to be the vineyard, that's why we're Anglicans. Right. Um, and Or other people might just think of it, well, isn't that sort of like saying an apple-like right. banana? Like, you know, aren't these very yeah. different things? And so I, I knew what Chuck Murphy meant when he said that. Um, Chuck was somebody who had been heavily influenced by mm -hmm. John Wimber, even as an mm -hmm. Episcopalian. And Chuck was also one of those Episcopalians who had been influenced by the church growth okay. movement. Um, and so Chuck was kind of a <clears throat> prototypical mainline person who had been influenced by like Maxwell and Wimber and Wagner and Fuller sure. and, you know, probably Hybels mm -hmm. and Warren and, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of era of people. And so it made Chuck way more creative, way more entrepreneurial, um, way more sort of outside of the box thinking to normal Episcopalians. So when Chuck asked me that, and because I knew his story, <clears throat> excuse me, I knew that he was not asking me to turn North American Anglicanism right. into the vineyard. I meant what he, I knew what he meant to say was those values. So things like kingdom, spirit, um, you know, good leadership, like sort of missional leadership. And I knew he meant things like the amazing presence of God when you mm -hmm. guys worship and things like, you know, you guys actually taking serious the person work of the spirit and praying for each other and stuff. I knew that's yeah. what he meant. And I knew that in a sense, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And that wasn't absolutely new right. to Anglicanism, that even in the generation just before me, there had been like, for instance, Dennis Bennett, who was one of the leading charismatic uh, renewal leaders in America and perhaps mm -hmm. around the world. Uh, I think Dennis was near Seattle, Washington. And the, on the other side of the country, you had Terry Fulham in Connecticut, who was, um, you know, sort of leading this more missional spirit, sort of yeah. evangelical thing in, Episco in the Episcopal Church. So I knew that's what Chuck meant. And so I've never had one day when I thought, you know, I need to sort of shove the vineyard worldview down Anglicans' throats mm -hmm. or I need to sort of make us into Anglicans or something and make us into vineyards or something. Nothing like that has ever mm -hmm. crossed my mind. I just knew that it meant, I think it meant kind of a best of both yeah. worlds. Is there a way that sort of historic mainline sacramental Christianity could join with the more missionally minded and kingdom minded and, and for lack of a better phrase, spirit-empowered forms of yeah. Christianity. Now that I don't feel embarrassed or bad about. That actually feels to me like to be a really yeah. a really good thing. And then I just have to leave it in the eye of a beholder whether or not they think that's a good thing for modern Anglicanism yeah. or not. I'm sure there's plenty of opinions yeah. about whether it yeah, is. Yeah, I, I hear you describing um, something that I also, I think it mirrors you know, why I, I came from a very similar background, kind of a vineyard into Anglicanism. Mm -hmm. And for me, it never felt like uh, the values of being spirit-led and, you know, the, the presence of God and all that kind of, like those those kinds of values never felt 
antithetical to the sacramental grounding yeah. that I think the Anglican tradition gives, that they're, they're right. nothing yeah. but complementary and actually perhaps uh, mutually reinforcing. So they're actually helpful for one another. Yeah. Um, and so I, I hear you describing that, that there's this kind of, there's not as like this amalgamation of two things that don't belong together, but more of a, uh, you know, like you said, best of both worlds, kind of bringing these things together to say, mm-hmm. actually, these things fit. This, this fits into the big tent of Christianity, which... You know, there's a definition of Anglicanism out there, right? That calls it. It's just mere. It's trying to be mere Christianity. It's trying to be right. Um, a big tent. So yeah, and of course, yeah, and of course, mere Christianity would include Jesus's gospel, right. of the kingdom. Of course, like this was Jesus' yeah. idea, not not yeah. Leslie Newbigins yeah. or something. Um, and and the sending of the Spirit is not a 20th century charismatic right. idea. It's 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 you know it's the third person of yes. Almighty God. Yeah. Um, so you're right. There's an irony here, Ben, that I haven't thought about in many years, and I don't remember exactly which teaching this was in of Wimber's. But Wimber always had around him a study assistant, and I ha- and of course I knew most of them. And I remember one of them for a series of talks John was di- giving actually did a history of the hmm. Holy Spirit. And so hmm. there's a great irony here that much of John's thinking about the person and work of the Spirit is rooted in the patristics. Yes. It's rooted in the history of the church. It's actually, John actually, I don't even know if I should be saying this in public. John actually really didn't like 1970s charismatics or 1970s Pentecostals. I don't mean he didn't like them personally. He didn't like sort of the big show. He didn't like the hype. Like he didn't like, there was part of the sociologist, sociology of it that he just couldn't ever really get with. You know, he was an old rock and roll musician, you know. Uh, uh-huh. 70s sort of bebop. I mean, sorry, 50s sort of bebop rock and yeah. roll musician. And um, so he didn't just, he just, just didn't feel like he socially fit with that group. So therefore, when he found sources uh, mm. about the spirit, the life and work of the spirit, all, all the way back in the great tradition, that's what really grounded mm. him. And I don't think very many people yeah, would know I, that. I wasn't aware that that was part of his story either. So, yeah. So, um, so C4SO kind of began as this church planning movement, 2009-ish, Anglican mission mm-hmm. in the Americas, eventually um, became part of, became a diocese in the Anglican church in North America. Uh, we were approved for formation as a diocese in June 2013. Um, and I wonder if we can maybe, um, unless there's more to that story that you want to share, but I, I, I wonder if we can uh, end on this question here, where um, right now, you know, what it says on our, our website is, you know, in these diverse contexts where we've got um, churches started in California, but, you know, now quite a few churches in Texas and the Midwest, the Southeast, uh, organized by these regional deaneries. And in these diverse contexts, we seek to develop ministry from the mission field back, contextualizing our tradition yeah. for a given ministry setting. Um, and I wonder if we could end on this. You know, you mentioned last, uh, last week um, that the intersection of gospel church and culture have been fascinating for you. Um, is this kind of what mm-hmm. you're talking about when you when we talk about from the mission field back? Um, I wonder if you could expand on that uh, a bit as to maybe why those things are important for, for you and for our diocese. Yeah. Yeah, so if you think of like a three-way intersection, which I know are rare, but or, or think of the word mm-hmm. nexus. When I think of uh, the intersection of gospel and church and culture, um, yes, it, it has been through thinking about that, 
that I came up with that phrase, engineering church from the mission field backwards. And that actually was one of my very first thoughts, Ben. That goes all the way back to 2008, mm. 2009. And uh, again, that sometimes can be misunderstood, sure. but I never meant that as a dissing, as we, as we say in Southern California, a dissing of the yeah. great tradition or the dissing of Anglicanism. I just meant we're not trying to force Anglicanism on people. We're trying to make followers of yeah. Jesus. And so then my question always was when I began to understand the various elements of Anglican spirituality uh, in the prayer book, um, in its formularies, in um, all of its scholars, I just thought, wow, this is an amazing bunch of stuff that can be leveraged or used in the cause in the basic causes of mm -hmm. christianity of evangelism and discipleship bringing healing and justice to the world um so yeah i think when again when i look back ben i sometimes jokingly say that in a in another life i could have been a sociologist mm -hmm. of religion because of my interest in gospel yeah. church and culture but when i look back i feel like again like i i feel similar to when i was writing the accidental anglican 10 years ago that in hindsight, Ben, my life, I didn't ask for it, but my life, I think, has been marked by cultural moments and cultural things. So for instance, as a very young person, as we talked about last week, sort of like 12 to 19 before I got converted, I was aware of all the hand-wringing about the decline of mainline, mainline mm -hmm. churches. And that was a yeah. cultural moment, yeah. no doubt. And somehow that got in my spirit. I don't even know how, I can't remember. I just remember all the hand-wringing of Methodists, you know, Episcopalians, Lutherans, right. Presbyterians, you know, we are all declining. Obviously, the Jesus movement was a cultural moment and a cultural movement. Uh, the Vineyard certainly was a worldwide, you know, sort of cultural movement, uh, especially um, with the Vineyard, I think, bringing kind of experiential Christianity yeah. to the fore that, you know, again, people would see in our singing or in our worship or in healing. Um, I think Alpha was a cultural movement, again, being born out of post-Christianism, yeah. post-modern um, um, post England. Um, Alpha was, I think, actually a cultural movement of what I now call egalitarian forms of, of hmm. evangelism where instead of having an expert up on a stage sort of preaching down to people, and I don't sure. mean that pejoratively, I mean just think of the physicality yeah. of it. Um, modern people actually liked that. They demanded it, basically. Like, we want mm -hmm. an expert to tell us what to think. Well, when you get to postmodernism and post-Christendom, the whole world changes, and now you have to sit down and talk to people like on their level mm -hmm. and listen. Well, that's the genius yeah. of Alpha. Yeah is it's it's alpha's ability as we were saying earlier these other english evangelicals i mean alpha's got i forget now 12 talks i think um let's just say 12 <laughs> for the fun of it and so alpha yeah. talks but then it sits down at a table with real live seekers and says what do you think and feel about what yeah. you just heard now that was a completely novel yeah. approach uh, to evangelism. And again, it feels to me like a cultural, it bubbled up mm. out of culture. And then I think of the Weber Canterbury trail thing that again, I think was kind of a cultural movement within the church of evangelicals starting to get a little tired of the evangelical tribe and finding something magical in the great tradition as expressed by Weber. So when I look back, Ben, I just think 
my life has been marked by, um, I guess I feel a little bit like, uh, uh, what's that movie? Life's like a box of chocolates. Oh, yeah, Forrest Gump. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I feel a bit, a little bit like Forrest <laughs> Gump. Like I've just found myself yeah. in those things. And you're right. All that then wrapped up into how do we use the loveliness, the beauty, the power, the historicity, um, all the, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years that have gone into thinking about things like our prayer mm -hmm. book and those sorts of things. How do we leverage them in 2020 or at the time, 2008, 2009? So that's always been my passion is to help Anglicans see that they have riches that doesn't disqualify them from the best of evangelicalism, but actually um, gives them riches that can be used in the, you know, I know evangelicalism is kind of a bad term these days, but if you put it in its mm. best light, um, that, uh, that evangelicals could participate. It's always broke my heart, Ben, <clears throat> that former Episcopalians, they're, they're, this is a caricature, but they're, you know, their thought process is so often, A, we were the biggest mm. losers. Like when the mainline church was crashing, no one was crashing faster right. than Episcopalians. And now we're divorced. And just that feeling of like kind of who are we and do we have anything to offer? And I think I've just always wanted to say yes, mm -hmm. yes, and yes. You get to play too. You get to play in mission yes. and evangelism and healing and people following Jesus and people being filled with the Spirit for the good of others. And I think that's been my project is how do I bring all these things together that um, that in a sense sort of Anglicans get to play too. Hmm. And I should say, I don't mean to say they weren't playing before that. I just mean to say that's been a, a big part of my imagination and trying to be a, a positive influence yeah. in modern American yes. Anglicanism. Well, thank you for sharing uh, that part of your story, Bishop Todd. And that uh, that does bridge us into kind of the, the heartbeat and the DNA of Churches for the Sake of Others which we'll talk a little bit more about next week. We'll talk about the mission, uh, our current mission. I think that kind of catches us up here, and now this is kind of where we came from and how we emerged uh, as a diocese. And um, I think next week we'll talk a bit more about what are we doing now and uh, what, is, what does it mean to be part of uh, churches for the sake of others. Uh, does that sound good to you? Great. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Ben. Enjoy being with yes. you. Thanks so Friends, much. Friends, if you uh, have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Um, we, maybe we, in the future we can do some Q&A episodes uh, with Bishop Todd and others. Um, so if you would like to um, reach out and uh, connect with us, you can email connect at c4so.org, and we will see you next time. Peace. again for listening to this episode of the C4SO podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Email us your thoughts and suggestions at connect at c4so.org.